Saints, Zach, and March is upon us, so there's no better time to listen to Bald Men on Campus, an ESPN podcast hosted by Jay Billis, LaFonso Ellis, and Seth Greenberg. These ESPN basketball personalities give you an all-access pass inside the world of college basketball, talking to the biggest names in the sport. That's Bald Men on Campus. Listen, wherever you get your podcasts. And now, the low Welcome to the Low Post podcast on a late Monday afternoon where thank the basketball gods, because after all the rumors, after all the Instagram videos, after all the pot shots, after all the rumblings and sources who were lying and sources who were half lying and sources who were kind of telling the truth, we can talk about the Philadelphia 76ers as a fully formed basketball team with James Harden and Joel Embiid. They have played two games to help us digest what has happened in those two games, one of which was against the Minnesota Timberwolves, okay team on a back-to-back, and the other one was against the hapless, horrible, dysfunctional kazoos of New York to help us digest <laughs> all of that. Tim Bontemps, how are you? I'm doing well, Zach. I, as as are you, I am thrilled that we can just talk about basketball again and not about uh, you know whether people are getting paid or whether people are going to play or whatever. It, it's a much more fun exercise to talk about the actual games now here are the here are the vitals as we might say the philadelphia the 76ers with james harden are two and oh their offensive rating is 125 points per 100 possessions their defense rating good. is 102 in That's 50 good. in 53 minutes with Embiid and harden on the floor they are plus 46 that's also pretty good james harden suddenly looks kind of spry <laughs> Kind of spoiled. I, I can't tell you how shocked I am that upon being <laughs> traded, James Harden's hamstring suddenly looks like a little bit less of a problem, and the step back threes are falling, and he's running the break. The Sixers are playing at a turbocharged pace. Everything yep. seems. I, I he clearly has had hamstring problems. They hampered him in the playoffs last year and again this year, but yep. somehow by magic he put on a new uniform with a new <laughs> number and looks amazing again. Tim, uh, the Sixers look every bit the potential juggernaut. Um, that we thought they could be with these two guys. We'll talk about how the pick and roll combination looks. You don't want to read yep. too much into these wins against an okay team on a back-to-back and a sliding, terrible bunch of yep. kazoos. Uh, but <laughs> what has you did you saw the Sixers up close? I believe you are at both games, correct? I was at both games. Yes. So, so watching them from courtside or wherever you get to watch them now at at uh, Madison Square Garden. Yep. Um, from the from the Chase see what are these the Chase Media deck I can't something remember something like something like that yeah uh, what struck you watching these guys up close with and by the way we should also mention eighty free throws in two games Joel Embiid down the stretch against the Knicks Tim I thought I think he might be the first player I've ever seen that looks like his arms are tired from shooting too many free throws. Like he was huffing and puffing at the line and like taking play. I thought like, I think somewhere we've reached the upper bounds on how many free throws a player can take in one game. What has struck you up close about these guys? Well, I, I had a, I had a couple people from the league text me after yesterday's game and go, yeah, the, the Sixers might be the best regular season team the rest of the season, which I, I think to your point is maybe a little bit of a uh, reach, but I think there's little doubt that they're going to be a very effective, regular season team. And I think, you know, the biggest thing is, like you said, not only does James Harden look good and energized, but this whole team looks energized. And I think it's safe to say that while they weathered it about as well as they could have, this has been a really draining several months for them, right? It's obviously been boring. It's obviously been draining for everybody around it, covering it. 
I think it's been really draining on the Sixers to just have to constantly have the what is going to happen to our team thing hanging over them. And obviously getting James Harden is an exciting thing for them, but I think beyond that, just being done with it, you can see that there's kind of a an energy and a weight has been lifted off of everybody with that franchise. And I think it sort of came through in those first couple of games. Now, as you said, these are probably the two best teams the, the Sixers could have started with. Minnesota literally fouls more than every other team in the league. Perfect opponent for James Harden and Joel Embiid to go up against. And the Knicks are a mess. So you can't read, I think, too much into these games. But the pick and roll combination looks really good. James Harden looks energized. I think perhaps most importantly, Tyrese Maxey looks awesome as a third piece with those guys, either attacking into space with his speed or I think pretty impressively, his catch and shoot three looks pretty good, which he hadn't really taken. I think he'd averaged less than two a game before these couple games with James Harden. The shot looks good. He's going to get a lot of open looks. So I think there's no question they're going to be a really, really, really good offensive team. I still think some of the other things I had concerns about, um, you know, particularly their defense, their size, um, I think some of that stuff is still going to be an issue. But the Sixers, I think, have a lot of reasons to be optimistic after what's been, I think it's fair to say, a dream start you know, for these first couple games. Offensively, right away what stands out, before you dive into the nitty-gritty, which we will, is everything feels very well-balanced and everyone right away seems to have found their correct water level. So Embiid, all of a sudden, it's like 10 times easier for him. I mean, so much easier. He doesn't have to sit there and go over double teams and through double teams and fade away baseline jumpers. He can waltz his way into 20 easy points every game. You can see why the big big fellow looks so happy. His life has gotten a lot easier. It's so much easier. Um, He has, I'm looking at the tracking data now, he has 19 post-touches in two games. Um, His rate of post-touches is about twice as frequent in the minutes with Harden on the bench, and they are staggering the minutes as we expected them to. Those 19 post-touches, that's like a little, that's less than he would have averaged in two typical games before this, but that's fine because the touches are being redistributed to pick-and-roll touches, to half-roll touches, to leading the break, like a like yep. Olajuwon leading a fast break. It's crazy. Um, Harden yep. doesn't feel overtaxed with Embiid there. Uh, they do have to find a synergy of what he's going to do when Embiid is posting up, but that hasn't been a problem. Maxi as the third option, and I'm sorry to Tobias Harris, he, he has surpassed Tobias Harris as the third yeah, option. Yeah, for sure. For looks sure. like he's shot out of a cannon in transition, and Harden Embiid pick and roll, sucking the defense, kick to Maxi. Maxi attacks the gap. That's the number one thing I said before the trade, or maybe that was the day the trade happened that I have zero concerns about Maxi fitting in around the Harden and B pick and roll. In fact, I was excited to see it. And Tobias Harris, look, he has 18 points, I think, in two games or something like that. He's got to score more. Um, it's sort of good news and bad news. The good news is all he's going to do is take spot-up threes, and that's really all he should probably do on a great team. The bad news is he's being paid like $35 million to, to take yes. spot-up threes. A $35 million fourth option is not ideal. Um, so, so the the thing, they, everything just feels um, easier on offense. So everyone feels like they're at their right water level. Defensively, I talked about this with Van Gundy, and it unfolded as I expected. They found a middle ground so far between how Harden likes to play and how Embiid likes to play, which is to say they'll switch everything or a lot of things one to four. Sometimes they try not to switch Maxi, uh, yep. 
But and but with Embiid, they're going to stay in drop back defense. And to James Harden, if that means you got to chase over a screen, you got to chase over a screen. And you know what happened in the first game, Tim Bontemps? Did you take well, three minutes? Three minutes into the game, he and Joel Embiid had a miscommunication. And Jaden McDaniels got a dunk. So uh, well, that's, that's fine. That was like on a switch. But you know what else happened in that game? James Harden by going over a screen drew an illegal screen call uh, yes, he on did. Jared <laughs> Vanderbilt. Yes, and he I did. was I I I didn't take the time to do it. I wonder how many illegal screens James Harden has Garrison Matthews draws one every six minutes he's on the floor. He's like a he's running <laughs> into screens all the time. Yes. I, it had been a long time since I saw James Harden draw an illegal screen. Um they look it it, it Offensively, with the staggering that Doc has done, it looks um, more polished and easier earlier than I even thought it would. Yeah, I agree. I think it's been good. I, you know, there were a lot of questions. You know, Doc in the past has not always, to put it charitably, staggered his players, uh, his stars. There was a lot of skepticism about whether he would. He's sort of immediately gravitated to what I think were the pretty natural partnerships, Maxine and Bede, Harden and Harris. Um, you know, there's like one, there's a weird like minute stretch at the end of the first or third quarters where Tobias is on the bench and James is out there by himself. But basically every other second of the game, they have at least two of those guys out there. You they know what you do in Ch- those minutes, by the way, you rev up the minivan and you go to the Harden George Niang pick and pop three rev up that minivan, baby. Yes. Well, and, and doc has even pointed out Harden clearly knows that Niang is going to shoot it and he's getting him the ball a lot when he's out there with him. It's not a coincidence. He's one of their most willing and, and better three-point shooters. Um, but, yeah, I think generally it has flowed together very well with the caveats that they've played a couple really good opponents and also with the caveat that, as you know, when James Harden has the step back going, he's a way different-looking player. And in these first couple games, I want to say he's something like six for eight or five for eight or something on that step back, which when he's making that shot, it's a totally different thing. I personally don't think he has – a different burst than he did really earlier this season with Brooklyn, uh, obviously setting aside the last couple of weeks in Brooklyn when things were all over the place, but the early parts of the season when I thought he was still a really good player, but not the guy that he looked like when he got to Brooklyn last year, when he was a, you know, top five or six player in the league. I think ultimately for the Sixers to be a championship level team, they need that version of James Harden pre the first hamstring injury to really come back. Um, but that being said, the fit has been great. Him and Embiid have immediately had synergy in the pick and roll. They look comfortable together. Uh, you have to feel really good um, overall about the big picture look of this team, you know, and even if it doesn't necessarily overcome some of their weaknesses that I think they're still going to have going forward. You know what I'm starting to feel really good about, Tim Dontemps? What's that? James Harden said Philadelphia was his first choice all along, right? <laughs> remember that that was remember that was that? a thing that he said that is true and and, and after after the first game against the Timberwolves Daryl Morey did you see what he told uh, our Ramona Shelburne uh I did but you should probably tell our viewers in case they did not or our listeners I should James say. James has wanted to play with Joel for a long time <laughs> that is true I'll tell you right now some of the main characters in this drama are not exactly um disproving my crazy conspiracy theory that this was all a long con designed to defraud the Brooklyn Nets and make their draft picks more valuable to the Houston Rockets and the Sixers 
and the Rockets conspired all along to make it happen. You can start to, like you can start putting the pieces. On. I I gotta get a chart. Well, my, like listen, like my, the always my sunny favorite. in Philadelphia guy and have the strings connecting it. And I, I said this before, Tim. I said it before. The perfect alibi. Oh, Tillman Fertitta hates Daryl Morey. He'll never trade James Harden to Daryl Morey. That's a perfect. And now, now Bill Simmons on his podcast talked about how Joel Embiid really wanted Bradley Beal, not James Harden. Another perfect alibi to try to deflect away from this long con theory that I'm going to copyright. I'm I'm beginning to worry that I'm actually onto something. We can talk about all the reasons why it's ridiculous, but every time they speak, they're speaking my long con into existence. Well, my my favorite quote of the, of, of the last couple of weeks is when at uh, his, James' introductory press conference, Daryl Morey just out of nowhere. Uh, I I think it was when I asked James about uh, you know uh, uh, the question that led to him talking about it being you know him not having a say in it necessarily in the first place. Uh, Daryl just launched into, well, you know, I always thought it should have been a three-team trade anyway, which I thought was great. Like, yes, of course, you would have loved to have your guy James Harden last until, year. Of course. Until they <laughs> until came the up with the theory. long con idea. That's right. That's now, right. Let, That's me they did that. let me be clear. I'm being facetious because think about this. The, the, like, no one could have predicted the Kyrie vaccination fiasco that undid the Brooklyn Nets this year. Of course. Okay? Um, the Beal thing, whether it's real or not, I don't really know. That's Simmons reporting that, not me. That's obviously a variable. And and as I've said before, the idea that they uh, wanted to destabilize the Nets to make the Nets draft picks more valuable to the Rockets, it's unclear that that's been successful because Ben Simmons is so much younger than James Harden. It would seem to be sort of a, a, a floor raiser long term. It's just fun. And I'm telling you, Tim, every time they talk, Every time someone talks, it's like, we've been planning this all along. You, They might as well just say, we've been planning this all along, because they're almost saying it. I'm telling you right now, if this is true, <laughs> I want to write the book in 20 years. If you're listening and you were in on it, I want to write the book. Well, whether it was true or not, ultimately, as I said at the beginning, and as you said, I'm just very glad that we're done talking about what may or may not be, and instead we're talking about what is. Because it, it, is, it is going to be very fascinating to watch this team and I am excited that we're talking about the basketball and not, you know, theoretical possibilities of future outcomes. Since I'm being a little punchy right now, Tim, can I ask you another question? Sure. That's what remember, I'm here for, to answer your questions. Remember when LeBron said that the author of the play-in tournament should be fired? Yes, I do remember that. So that was when the Lakers were in a tie for 6th and 7th in the Western Conference playoff race. And That's it was correct. clear that they were at risk of the plan. The Lakers, after a just... Truly embarrassing weekend of basketball, losing to the Clippers and the Pelicans, and the Pelicans by a thousand points. Are the DeAndre now... the the, John, the DeAndre Jordan pass in the Pelicans game was such a funny moment that I laughed so loud that my wife actually asked me why, what is going on? Why did you wake me up? <laughs> I, could, I just lost it. They're now they're now ninth by two games. They went on LeBron. I just I have to applaud. I'm I'm like LeBron did all the stuff he did on All Star Weekend, right? Talking up Presty, the tweet about Les Sneed's them picks shirt, uh, talking up Kobe Altman, telling Jason Lloyd of the Athletic on the record, on the record, I have not closed the door on coming back That's to correct. Cleveland. That's and then correct. 48 hours later, after everyone writes about, the, what do you guys talk about? I didn't mean anything by it. You guys are just making up storylines. How, how, how could you? How could you? How could you draw a parallel to, the, or could you put a link between one and the other? 
I don't you know. You don't need the big conspiracy board to do that, Zach. <laughs> I don't understand. I, I don't understand how anyone could have come to any conclusion that anything was amiss. My question is, do you think now that he's ninth, he's going to apologize to the author of the play-in tournament who is now no. responsible for keeping the Lakers season alive and say, hey, I mean, maybe they, you shouldn't be fired. Maybe you deserve a promotion. I mean, based off based off the way the Lakers played and seemed to care in the game Sunday night, he might say they should be fired because they look like they wanted the season to end last night as opposed to uh, in April. And therefore, if they're in night, they wouldn't have to play in the play-in tournament at all and they would be done. Uh, now, I should also say, the last time I was on your pod and we talked about the Sixers, I compared James Harden to Russell Westbrook. And I do think that my... Uh, Comparison holds weight in the sense that I do believe that James has structural flaws at this point in terms of needing the ball in his hands to uh, that will be a limiting factor down the road against better teams. That being said, uh, Russell Westbrook is not a good basketball player at this point, and James Harden is a very, very good basketball player at this point. So I, I should what, clarify. And just, and just for the record, what did I say when you and Bobby Marks were on your slam James Harden and compare him to Russell Westbrook a little bit you, there? What, you, did, what you, did I say? You took. You, I don't remember exactly what you said, but you took the other side of the argument. I will 100% give you that. Two guys drove to work. Neither guy wore a seatbelt. One guy got a ticket. One guy didn't. The same two guys drove home. One guy wore a seatbelt. One guy didn't. One guy made it home. The guy not wearing his seatbelt didn't. Don't risk it. Click it or ticket. Paid for by NHTSA. For the ones who get it done, Granger offers high quality supplies and solutions for every industry, as well as access to product specialists who have the knowledge and experience to answer your toughest questions. Plus, their commitment to being your safety partner can help you keep your facility safe and your people safer. Call or click Granger.com or just stop by. Hey everyone, just FYI, Tim Bontemps and I recorded this discussion about the Sixers before Woj broke the news that they may be frontrunners to sign DeAndre Jordan. We talk about their backup center situation a bit. Maybe that will be their backup center. We'll see. Thanks for listening. What struck you about the Harden and Bede pick and roll mechanically in terms of how they set it up and why it worked so well? Again, again, it's two against two opponents, one of whom plays a blitzing defense that is kind of anachronistic in the NBA. So yes. we'll take that for what it's worth. But what did you notice about either how they set it up, how they executed it? Well, Joel actually rolled, I think, is the biggest thing. And it was funny. After Sunday's game in New York, uh, he got asked a question. I think it was by Rich Hoffman from The Athletic. I can't remember exactly who, about rolling. and. Tyrese Maxey, who was sitting with Joel, actually sort of goaded him on to answer. He said, I hope you answer that question. It was sort of pretty clearly like, a, hey, man, why don't you talk about the fact that you're actually rolling to the basket now? And, you know, the big fella kind of laughed it off and said, oh, you know, I'm, I like what I've been mixing it in. But he clearly is a guy who likes to pop out and catch the ball and either shoot it or dribble around. And he is mixing in some hard rolls. A part of the reason that they got so many free throws in that game on Sunday was James kept hitting them with passes on the roll. And... You know, Jericho Sims and Mitchell Robinson kept hacking Joel and he went to the line 100 times, right? So I do think that it's been pretty clear that James Harden's passing has been pretty surprising to these guys in terms of how good a passer he is. Like there was one play, Joel sort of did a soft roll in the Minnesota game and they sort of rushed up to double team James. And James threw this ridiculous quick bounce pass to him. And Joel was so wide open when he caught it at the elbow that he sort of just stood there dumbstruck for a while and then ended up passing the ball out because he didn't react fast enough and the defense converged on him. And I asked him after the game if he was surprised. He goes, yeah, I never thought I would get that pass. And 
So I think that the chemistry there has been pretty good. And at the end of the day, Zach, those guys are such dynamic offensive players individually that the defense has to react to everything they're both doing. And so it's going to be sort of impossible for that not to have some chemistry. And I will be very curious to see what they look like when they do start playing some better defensive teams. You know, even though Cleveland can't score, like they play Cleveland on Friday, they play Miami on Saturday. Let's see what they look like against those kind of opponents with better bigs that can move around and do stuff. But it's been pretty impressive to see how quickly those guys have gotten on the same page. And, you know, they are going to score a ton of of points in regular season games. I think that much is clear. I mean, they've averaged 130 through these first two games, and I wouldn't be surprised if they're averaging 130 in a month. What I kept saying after the trade was, I agree it's going to be interesting to see the role dynamic, the pop versus role, and how – you know, Embiid is not Capella in terms of a stylistic fit with Harden. I agree. I am interested to see what Harden is doing while Joel Embiid posts up. But what I kept saying is talent is talent and talent papers over a lot of fit issues and the supernova level of talent is going to be, they're going to be fine. And I think you just nailed it. Soft roll, short roll, whatever you want to call it. Joel Embiid catching the ball at the dotted line or even the foul line, it's like a it's like a lob it's a layup. for him. It yeah. might as it's well like be a, a lob. It's yeah. one step rim, one step foul. Or if I have to take a little jumper, I'm almost a 48, 50% shooter on a good right. night from that right. range. It doesn't have to be a lob. And if he can just and also the way Joel sometimes changes, if it's not a hard roll, but he keeps rolling, sort of start and stop, start and stop, it allows Harden to play that cat and mouse game and keep the defense guessing, and then he got a layup out of that yep. against the Knicks. And that's what I, I said be, before we even saw them play. The short roll, he's so talented that it's going to be almost as good as just a not, – it's not a dunk, but what I'm saying, he's so – he's going to get fouled or he's going to be at the basket, right. and he's so big, right. nobody can stop him. And that, and that definitely played out um, in, in those first two games. No question. I mean, look, I mean, Joel – Joel's gotten way better even passing out of double teams in the post. Like his skill level improvement the past couple of years since that Toronto series is really remarkable. I mean, you know, obviously we've seen that video that you're Wait, are you talking are you times. talking about the Toronto series that Ben Simmons reportedly, according to anonymous sources, thinks is Joel Embiid's fault, even though the Sixers were plus I, I, nine, nine yeah, million I'm not, points with Embiid I'm on not, the floor? We need to we do need to talk about that series later on because the backup center thing is going to be a gigantic problem, I think, for the Sixers. But setting that aside for now, um like We've seen I, you've seen the video that his trainer Drew Hanlon's put out of him doing all these moves that are like Kobe and Michael did, but like it is unbelievable to watch Joel Embiid catch the ball in the post and like basically do the same package moves Jason Tatum is doing with the Celtics. Like it, he is his skill level is out of control, and like you said, if you just if you just get him the ball anywhere on the court with space, like he's just an absolutely devastating weapon. And even like people compare him to Shaq, you could foul Shaq and he might miss two free throws. Like, Joel makes every free throw. Like, he's – it's just – they're going to be just an absolute machine scoring the ball, even against good teams. They're going to get to the line, you know, 15 to 20 times a game or more, and they're going to score a lot of points. And like you said, their talent is going to paper over a lot of stuff, especially in the regular season. And, you know, they're going to win a lot of games. they got a shot to be a top two or three seed in the East. And, you know, they're going to put themselves in position to, you know, be a pretty damn tough team to get out of the playoffs. I'm interested to see, even when Embiid pops for three, I'm interested to see how the defense responds. Like, do you want to give him wide open threes? More than that, 
if he catches the ball wide open from the arc, he can drive. His yes. skill his skill set is already. He can drive. If you run pick. out at him, he'll go right past you. And yep. or or are you going to see defenses start sending a, a third wing defender kind of flashing at him, and he can exploit that? Like I, I don't even think a pop is like a gig- It's it might be a win relative to the other outcomes for the defense, but it's not like a great win. And you can't switch. No. Like you just you can't. There is no personnel that exists to switch no. a James Harden, Joel Embiid, pick another that human. That that a, a human capable of guarding both guys basically doesn't exist, let alone two guys who right. can switch who can switch that play. I mean, I think what you'll see in the I think what you're going to see is sort of what we saw in the game Sunday, right? Friday night, the Sixers go 19 for 39 from three. I don't remember exactly what they shot off the top of my head against the Knicks, but it was something like 12 for. It was it was bad. They shot badly, I think, in the game. I'm gonna, actually I got it right here. They were 10 for 33 in Sunday's game, like. Basically, you're going to dare Matisse Thibel and Danny Green and George Niang and these other guys to hit shots. And if they all hit shots, they're going to be unguardable. And if they don't hit shots, you're basically going to dare those guys to beat you. Is really what you're going to do. And Joel Embiid and James Harden in those situations are still going to score a ton of points. But against the good teams, that's going to be the swing. Can they get enough shots from – can they get enough makes from those other guys to – you know, force teams to somewhat cover them. And if they do, then, you know, there's really no stopping that pick and roll from working. See, I think Maxi and Harris will make enough threes. They're, they're, Maxi's a good shooter. Harris is a good shooter. Niang, right. Korkmaz, Niang, Korkmaz, they're coming off the bench with shooting. Danny Green's a proven shooter. He's not as good as he used to be. He's lost a little bit of whatever, but he's still a good shooter. Thibault yep. is the one that his three point shot is going to be something of a bellwether for them. Well, and you, you've already noticed the Sixers are talking a lot about him cutting. It's all like Matisse cutting, Matisse cutting, Matisse cutting. It's not Matisse shooting, right? Like his shot has, I think, gotten to the point this year where it's a lot of like, and they've hit him, like James Harden's hit him on some cuts for dunks and some cuts for layups. And Matisse is a smart cutter and he's a very smart high IQ player, but that, I I don't think you're going to be counting on him making any threes. It's going to be trying to find ways to navigate the defense to get some other ways to make an impact with the space he's going to have. And look, the more we saw with Bruce Brown, the more star power you put around a guy like that, the bigger those cutting lanes get, the more frequent yep. opportunities you get. Because yep. if they can keep him on the floor in the playoffs, if you have Maxi competes his ass off on defense and he's pretty long and he's and he can he's got some bounce to him. If you have Maxi and Bead and Thibel on the floor, you can absorb Harden and another bad def- – or not bad, but another potential liability on defense. I think they have enough there with those three. But you have already seen them. They they have those four core starters, Maxi, Harden, Embiid, Harris. And that fifth spot, you've already seen them use that same lineup with Danny Green, with Korkmaz, with Niang even in bigger lineups. There's, Doc is clearly already sort of cycling through, okay, if Matisse is having a bad game, who else um, who else can fit in? Who else can fit in here? Uh, let's talk a little bit more about the the Harden and Bead pick and roll. The other thing I liked about it, and 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 we saw it. You can talk about it, you saw it up close. Was mm-hmm. th- they are doing the thing that D'Antoni used to do with Harden in Houston, which is start him in the corner, have him take a screen from Tobias Ayers or somebody off the ball, and run into a handoff from Embiid at the top. So it's not just a stagnant pick and roll. He's catching it on the move, and then you're in a situation where. If it's Tobias Harris on that side of the floor, it's a single side pick and roll situation where a help defender has to decide, am I helping off Tobias yep. Harris or am I just sitting yep. here? Oh, God, MB just dunked. Um, if it's they ran Thibel, that with Tyrese Maxey in that, in that game on Friday. They kicked it to him in the corner. He had a straight line drive to the rim for a layup. And that's something that Doc Rivers has said they've already worked on. Like 
And the other thing about Doc, like you bring up D'Antoni, Doc is sort of like D'Antoni in that, you know, you, you see some coaches where like something will work and they'll like try to do some other stuff and maybe come back to it later. If you've ever watched a Doc Rivers team, if they find something that works, they have no problem running it 15 times in a row. They'll just keep doing it and doing it and doing it. When you've got guys like James Harden and Joel Embiid, sort of from the D'Antoni school, like, hey, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Like, I, I think there's some, uh, I, I don't, I think there's, you know, some of the reason I think that this has been so successful right away beyond the opponents they played is that you've got a coach who's very comfortable saying, hey, this is a pretty simple thing to do, but it's going to work. So let's just run it and just, you know, make them stop us. And with those two guys, you just might not be able to stop them even if you know what's coming. And if it if it's Stiebel in the Harris spot setting that first screen for Harden, he kind of clears to the baseline. And so all of a sudden there's no help defender on what would be the quote-unquote yep. weak side of that play. Um, and they had one play against the Knicks where, where Embiid had the ball right at the top of the arc. And they ran that same action on the right side for Harden and on the left side for Maxi at the same time. And Embiid kind of mm-hmm. got to pick which direction mm-hmm. he wants to go to say so he actually picked Maxi on that play. That stuff, that stuff is uh is not going to be easy to guard. But let's talk about the minutes when Embiid is out because you hit on the backup center situation. They used Oof. Millsap as the backup center. Um Oof. what did you and, and they are they are out they did win the hard and only minutes by a non-trivial margin in these two games. So what what did you see that troubled you in those minutes? I mean it's it's a disaster. I mean I don't really care what the plus minus is. I mean Paul Millsap was not good with Brooklyn and he has not been good in these games with Philly. And I, I, you know, I mentioned the Toronto series because I feel like if he is the option that they're going to continue to go to, this could be a Greg Monroe 2.0 situation. For those that don't know what I'm talking about in that series against Toronto in game seven, Joel Embiid played 45 minutes and was plus 10. And in the three minutes he was not on the court, they were minus 12 and they lost by two. Obviously the game where Kawhi hit the buzzer beating three to win it. Um, but those non-Embiid minutes literally cost them, you know, arguably a championship. They might've won the title if they won that series. And I, you know, I understand, you know, Andre Drummond is not a world beater. I understand you're not going to not make the trade, uh, because Andre Drummond is in it. You do that, you figure it out later, but they have to come up with some sort of a solution for these minutes when Embiid is not on the court, because as Doc Rivers has been hammering home all year, this is a small team, like George Niang and Tobias Harris, so they're only fours. They don't have any other size. It's on an the awful. Re- it's an awful rebounding team. They've awful, been an awful rebounding awful. team all year. Right. They're small across the board. Now James Harden actually helps with that a lot. He's a very good rebounder. And like when they were playing Tyrese Maxey and Seth Curry, they would just get hammered on the boards every game. So James will help with that some. But you know, they just signed Willie Cauley Stein off the street. They have Charles Bassey. They have Paul Reed. Like, none of these options are great. And it, it, it sounds like a trivial thing, and I'm not saying it's going to doom them to win, but they do have to come up with some kind of solution that's better than these Millsap minutes because I just don't see how that is going to be an effective lineup. Because if they're running out there with James Harden, Furkan Korkmaz, Shake Milton, George Niang, and Paul Millsap, that's a lineup that's not guarding anybody. And they're going to give up a ton of points, I think, in those stretches. And if they're not making threes, those lineups can bleed points in a hurry. Now, Millsap is still a solid, smart defensive player. He's crafty on offense. He's a good passer. He has a little ball handling to his game. He's going to be the guy that, because of his track record, coaches trust, right? But you've noticed that— I just don't think he can move at this point. I mean, he couldn't move with Brooklyn either. The mobility and the finishing. He's only shooting 53% at the basket this year. He's getting—people are catching him from behind when they would not have been able to even last year. Yes. Um, I 
I assume they'll give Cauley Stein a chances at these minutes. I trust Cauley Stein in a playoff game about as much as I I I don't I don't trust him. I couldn't yeah, finish I, the metaphor. I just don't trust no, whatever it is. I don't trust him. No. Um, uh, I'd like to see Paul Reed get a look there because when Embiid's when it, when it means on the bench, you're just going into James Harden hunt mode. So James Harden's going to look around and say, okay, who do I want to set a screen for me? Okay, uh, Tobias Harris, pick and pop. Let's see what happens. Okay, they hedge. You get an open three. They switch. I've got something here. Paul Millsap, I, I, I'm hoping for a switch because if you pop, I, no one's going to really care. If you roll, you might not be able to finish. Paul Reed can roll and jump and That's dunk. Right. and That's and, right. and And – I, he's not a he's not a backline defender. I've almost in the in the glimpses we've seen of Paul Reed guarding wing players. Like there was a game in Chicago where he guarded DeRozan a lot and actually looked pretty good guarding DeRozan. I, I'm I bet they're going to give him a shot. It's just a, a coach is just always going to trust Paul Millsap over Paul Reed. Is that's just the way it is? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I I mean even Charles Bassey is another guy that at least has the ability to maybe roll to the rim and you know do some of the James Harden roll and lob threat stuff that we've seen in the past. But yeah, like. None of these options are good options. And again, I don't think it dooms the Sixers to failure, but it is something that I think is a real concern, as is, like you mentioned, Matisse Thibel. I think their 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 defense, their perimeter defense and their wing defense is going to be a real problem. You saw it in the game they played against Boston right before the All-Star break. Obviously, Boston shot the ball really well in that game, but they had no hope of guarding Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum. And I think that that, obviously not every team has two players like that, but if you're going through the East playoffs and you're going up against Jimmy Butler and Jason Tatum and Chris Middleton and DeMar DeRozan, and you like you go down the list, Kevin Durant, obviously. Zach Levine. Like Zach Levine, like Zach Levine and DeMar DeRozan. They have nobody to guard those guys. Like Tyrese Maxey tries hard, but he's not a guy that you could put on one of those guys and he's going to make much of an impact on him. Like he's just not. He guards ones so, really well, but you put him on a 6-7 wing, it's a, right. it's a different story. And James Harden is not guarding any of those guys, as we know. So it, it – that I think is also something that is going to be a concern for them. Like uh, that's why I'm fascinated. They, their schedule in March is really tough. They play a lot of really good teams. They play Miami. They play Denver. They play Dallas. They play Toronto. They play the Bucks and Suns. They play the Lakers late in the month and maybe AD is back. So at least maybe you have LeBron and AD on the court, uh, despite all their other flaws. They, they play a bunch of really good, they play Brooklyn next week. We'll see if Ben Simmons plays. Doesn't seem likely at this point. Um, you know, so they play a lot of, good opponents where I think we'll get a chance to really see a lot of this stuff in action and get a much better sense of where this team is. Cause like I said, for as good as they played through these first couple of games, it's just hard to take a lot of sweeping conclusions from it, both because it's a couple of games and because there are a couple of teams that with this group, they should be and beat handily. So, you know, it, it's going to be, but it's going to be fascinating to watch because they, they have these really strong strengths and some pretty glaring weaknesses that they have to try to balance out. So we'll see what they look like. Talking about water level again, Harden and Bede have run 36 pick and rolls between them through two games, which mm-hmm. amounts to about 32 per 100 possessions, which I, is on tracking data metrics. That's like a medium level volume. That's not like Trey Young will run like 70 pick and rolls per 100 right. possessions. And right. I think that's a good sign. I think that's a sign that they're finding the right mix of stuff. I yeah, because they're not going to get they're not going to get Joel to run. You're not running seventy pick and rolls with Joel anyway. Even if even if you want to do that, like that's just not how he wants to play. And you've got to cater to your best player. I am interested still in the question of what is Harden doing 
when Embiid posts up because through two games the answer is basically nothing. And if that and by the way, that might be okay because he's such a good catch and shoot three point shooter. He's taken his three point shots have all been crazy step back off the dribble. If you can get him some catch and shoot threes, we've already seen him. He has to be willing he has to be willing to take them though. And this goes back to the Westbrook comment I made the last time I was on. He when he does not have the ball, he does not do anything. He didn't do anything when he was in Brooklyn. He didn't do anything when he was in Houston when he played with Chris Ball. This has been the ongoing thing with him for several years if he like James Harden is an unbelievable player with the ball without the ball despite his shooting ability he has not been able to take advantage of that by having an unwillingness to really take advantage of his skill set so I'm with you I think that's going to be a really interesting thing is what does he do when he doesn't have the ball now the Sixers do have all these other weapons they give the ball to and it might not matter like you know you can kick the ball ahead to Tyrese Maxey he's so fast that he can you know, turn into a one-man fast break by himself, or he can run a pick and roll with Embiid and do stuff, or he could just throw it to Embiid, and Embiid can score by himself. So maybe it will make up for it that way, but it is going to be interesting to watch if he does change his game at all, because, you know, say what you want about James Harden, throughout his career, he's been very consistent that he's an amazing individual offense by himself, but he wants to do it his way, and that's really it. And he's not really willing to bend from that much. And we'll see if he's willing to. Well, I'm I'm interested. Just I'm I would like to track where he is because Embiid is a heavy left block post guy, and Harden prefers standing on the right side of the floor because he's left-handed, and so that way he's got his entire strong inside. Yep. And you saw that a lot. And so he's rarely one pass away from Embiid in in the post. He's usually two or three passes away. Which again, there was one play where against the Knicks where they had. Everybody on the right side of the floor except Embiid. And so Harden could stand at the top of the key and be one pass away and still have half the court to his left side. And maybe that's good. Maybe it's better for him to be across the court because that way Embiid can read the help and someone will cut and all of a sudden Harden will be open. I'm just interested to see sort of how that geometric issue kind of works itself out. But look. For sure. Milwaukee has been, even post-trade, has been my default. They're the favorite in the East. I think they're... I think they're half sandbagging the regular season. They're tired. They the guys went to the Olympics. All this. They're also just like that loss to Brooklyn at home over the weekend was a bad loss. They're fifth in the East. Um, I I think I think already I'm ready to put Philadelphia in a tier with Milwaukee and Miami. Those are those are my three best teams in the East. Boston is sniffing at their heels, um, and you know Chicago is Chicago's really good, man. They don't go away. And who am I forgetting? Uh, no, that's it. I mean, Cleveland is a great story. No, and they'll, be, they'll be a tough out. I can't talk about Brooklyn until they're like in the playoffs, basically. Yes. Um, but yes, Brooklyn has a ceiling that is absolutely scary. But sure. Philly, Philly's going to be Philly's going to be right there because these. Defensive potential issues, maybe this and that. Like I just, they're going to be really hard to stop offensively. Yeah, they have they have huge upward mobility, right? I still have Milwaukee and Miami in a tier, and then Philly in the next tier, just because I want to see this team play against some of these better teams first and get a sense of what they're going to look like against better competition. Like even that game on Sunday, the Knicks are a mess, and they scored a bunch of points and hung around in that game, despite the fact that Joel Embiid fouled their centers out in a combined about twelve minutes. It felt like, and you know, it, they should have been in more control of the game than they were until the end. And part of that was because they missed a ton of wide open threes. And they are a team that still isn't a very good shooting team and is probably going to have nights where they go eight for 30 on wide open threes. And that might sink them anyway. So 
I do want to see him against some of these better teams, but there's no question, as you've said several times, their talent level and their water level is high enough that if they can overcome some of those issues, they're more than good enough to make a run. Because Joel is playing as well as anybody on the planet. And essentially off of this year's roster, they traded Seth Curry and Andre Drummond for James Harden. And like, you know, that's not discounting Ben Simmons. But ben Simmons basically was not part of this team. So you add James Harden to a team that was already on pace to win close to 50 games, you're going to have a really, really good team. I don't think there's any question about that. And I think Embiid has another gear on defense that he's keeping in reserve that we don't that we don't see all the time. And part of the reason he's been keeping in reserve is because he had to do everything on offense. Yes. And and now he doesn't. He certainly have to do has it. no excuse to not open the tanks when it comes down when it gets down to it because now you've got James Harden, like you said, to take up some of that offensive slack that they just didn't have before when he had to literally create everything for himself. Tim Bontemps, where are you going to be next and what should we be looking for out of you? Our, ga- our one-man Gallup organization with his polling uh, <laughs> acumen, uh, where are you going to be next and what should we be looking for? Uh, I'm going to be with the Sixers a lot, shockingly. Uh, I will be in, uh, in Philly on Wednesday um, when they host the Knicks in James Harden's debut. Um, and then uh, I'm trying to think. I'll be in Boston a bunch this week. They play the Grizzlies on Thursday. They play the Nets on Sunday. So. Uh, just hopping around the Eastern Conference, where, by the way, before we go, I can't wait for the Eastern Conference playoffs. They're going to be awesome. Like, up and down the list, like every single matchup in the East playoffs, no matter who makes it, no matter who makes it out of the play-in tournament, is going to be really, really good. So I, I just can't wait for that to start. It feels like just yesterday, as an East Coast resident, I was bemoaning the degree to which Los Angeles had become the epicenter <laughs> of basketball. And it still yep. is the epicenter of basketball in terms of it's where all the agents and all the players live in the offseason. Well, not about the basketball. But, the basketball is out here. But it, it's it's the epicenter of the play-in race right now. <laughs> but uh, but it's it, but now it's like it's all come back. It's all come back towards Eastern Standard Time, baby. All right, Tim Bontemps, uh, enjoy your continued travels. Great work. I'll talk to you soon. Sounds good, buddy. Thanks for having me. Vivid Seats wants to get you to the games you love this spring. Experience every pitch, assist, and game-winning shot live and in person. And the best part? Each transaction is a step toward a free 11th ticket with Vivid Seats rewards. Score unbeatable perks like free tickets, surprise seat upgrades, and annual birthday deals. As the official ticketing partner of ESPN, Vivid Seats is offering you $20 off your first $200 ticket purchase with code LOW. That's code LOW, L-O-W-E, my last name, the name of this podcast. Visit vividseats.com or download the app today. Vivid Seats, experience it live. Spring is the best time to add new challenges to your training just in time for summer and warmer days. It's also the best time of the year to take a new look at your fitness routine, dial it up a notch, and continue powering on. Peloton's varying class lengths were designed with your personalized training in mind. Whether you'd like to add a 10-minute course session at the end of your strength class or take a 60-minute power zone ride to increase your endurance, Peloton classes help you focus on your needs and goals. They are also made to challenge you with a variety of classes like boot camps, boxing, okay? full body strength, marathon training, all created to grow your skills or push you to improve in what you already excel in. Peloton's expert coaches and nonstop vibes, hashtag vibes, will push you to new levels of strength and endurance, keeping you on your toes while giving you the professional coaching you need. With a wide variety of options, whether you prefer to run outdoors, row, or ride at home, or strength train at the gym, Peloton has something for you. Get your head start on summer with Peloton at onepeloton.com. That's onepeloton.com. I went. All right, it's long past time 
Not for a mention on the side, not for a tangent, but for a standalone low post podcast segment on a team that has been criminally undercovered, including at ESPN. We're guilty of it too. And it's because they're just winning. There's no drama about vaccine mandates and trades. There's no, you know, the, it's not the Boston Celtics overcoming some internal angst to rise again. It's not a happy surprise like the Cleveland Cavaliers and the Chicago Bulls. It's just sort of a boring, always injured, but always winning team that, by the way, fresh off demolishing the Bulls last night, is number one in the East by two games with something like an 80 to 85% chance of cinching that number one seed. It's time to talk about the Miami Heat and no better person to do it with than someone who is drunk deeply from the chalice of hashtag heat culture, <laughs> ESPN's George Sedano. How are you, sir? Uh, I'm great, sir. Thank you for having me on. It is a pleasure and an honor as a big fan of the Low Post podcast, someone who gets every episode. Uh, I am uh, really happy to be here and talk to you about heat culture. I mean, we can go way back if you want. We can talk about General Sherman Douglas and Ronnie Cycli. We can talk about Steve Smith and Glenn Rice, you know, the Pat Riley era. Pat Riley coming to Miami and, uh, you know, having his press conference on a cruise ship that Mickey Arison owned on my 18th birthday. We can get into all this stuff if you'd like. I'm you were not at the press conference on the cruise ship as no. part of your 18th birthday festivities, right? No. I just wanted to verify that. No, no, no. I was uh, somewhere in Hialeah, Florida, a very blue-collar neighborhood, uh, you know, watching it on the news somewhere. Yes. Well, uh, it has been a interesting and winding road for the Heat since LeBron James' departure in free agency, and it was well chronicled ahead of their uh, sort of absolutely improbable rise back to the finals in the bubble. And I think George actually... We'll see what happens in the playoffs, but what they've done this season, I understand that Kyle Lowry is new, is sort of replacing Goran Dragic, but you could see this as almost validation for, or validation of, a finals run that a lot of people wanted to dismiss as like, oh, the Heat, you know, with their militaristic culture, they're well made for the bubble. This is just sort of random. The Bucks were, were you know, were, were very involved in social justice and that sort of that took precedence for them. The Heat sort of benefited from that. And I watched all those games. I was like, there doesn't seem to be much fluky about this other than Jay Crowder turning into Clay Thompson for a couple of weeks. Like they look like a really good team. Last year, they bow out in the first round, a very frustrating season for them. This year, they're back. Like no one is talking about them. And I just went into some of the reasons why. Part of it is that we just have barely seen their real team, which makes them their 41 and 21 record even more impressive. Like I, they are a championship contender. 538 has actually now six teams with between a 10 and 17% chance of winning the championship. The Heat are one of those six teams with an 11% chance. I think the Celtics maybe are a little overrated as 538's favorite right now. Yeah. But I, I, I just, I, I guess, like Miami's a big city. It's a glamorous team. It's a glamorous market. They had LeBron. I don't understand why. The, I, I guess it's because Philly and Brooklyn have monopolized the discussion for just non-basketball reasons all year. But the Heat just are winning. They probably like it like this. Like, you go pay attention to someone else. We're going to put on our knee pads and hit each other in practice. And you can you know, pay attention. We're just going to knock you in the face, switch everything, make mean faces at you while we shut down your offense and come <laughs> away with the win. They probably love it. They absolutely love it. They want 
to fly under the radar. I mean, you've talked to Spo a million times. Like, you know that they don't want to be the front runners, right? Like, they they want people to sleep on them. It's how they, they ended up having all the success that they had in the bubble. And by the way, their social media account, which has become way more aggressive, I don't know if you've noticed, uh, over the last year or so in, uh, in the joke department, um, they're taking plenty of shots at us at ESPN, because I don't know if you remember this, but I, and I don't want to single someone out, so I apologize uh, to the people that may have done this on our social media accounts. I believe it was on Instagram about six weeks ago or so. They had a uh, they had different tiers, right, of the teams, and they had six teams in the true contender category. And at that time, it was Milwaukee, it was Chicago, and it was Brooklyn in the East, and then it was the Warriors, the Suns, and the Grizzlies. Uh, in the West. And then they had a different category where it said dangerous loomers. And uh, they had the Heat and the Lakers at the time. Oh, oh. <laughs> the only thing, the, the Lakers are looming at the edge of the play-in race. That's the only place they're looming. They're not looming. They're not, if you ran into the Lakers in a dark alley right now, you would not be scared of them. You would just walk up right, hey, Lakers, good to see you. Better luck tomorrow. <laughs> Yeah, you would walk right past them. Absolutely. Um, but I, I think because of that, um, so the Heat social media account took exception to that. And if you notice ever so subtly, every once in a while, if you go through their posts on Twitter or on Instagram, there is some reference to dangerously looming. Um, and their fans have started to do that. I did a Twitter search yesterday and there's a lot of dangerously looming every time that they win. Um, but to your point, um, they are 20 games over 500 for the first time since the 2013-14 season, which is the last LeBron season in Miami. Wow, and, I didn't realize that. Yeah, and they're 8-2 and two against the best teams um, in the Eastern Conference this year. And just so, like in last night's a perfect microcosm. They go, they beat the shit out of the Bulls. Kyle Lowry doesn't play. Like, I keep right. repeating this stat because it's crazy to me. Their four best players... Lowry, Butler, Bam, Bam surging right now, by the way, becoming all-star Bam again, and Hero, the front runner for six men of the year, have played 74 minutes together the entire season. 74 minutes, a game and a half, basically, and they're 41 and 21. Yeah, it's insane. I think it's like 15, maybe 16 games, but to your point, the minutes actually really puts real context on it. And when they built this team, Zach, they... It had Pat Riley's footprints all over it with Eric Spolstra right there by his side. Because I think that this team reminds me of, and I know I made the joke earlier about kind of those old Sherman Douglas teams, but this actually reminds me of some of those old Pat Riley teams in a lot of way, a lot of ways. And you you kind of wondered aloud, well, why isn't this team getting enough love, right? I mean, well, they don't have an MVP on their roster, right? Like the Nets do in Kevin Durant. Um, they don't have, uh, you know, well, and Philly does now as well, right? And Milwaukee does. So they don't have that right out of the gate. So then the other aspect of it is, you know, Jimmy Butler, I think because of what happened in the bubble, I think ascended. And I would probably venture to guess, and you would know better than me, that there hasn't been someone that late in their career who probably ascended into the top 10 category as late as Jimmy Butler has, right? So I think that plays a role into this conversation as well. And then, you know, Bam is great. 
Um, I think if you're a basketball dork like you and me, you know how impactful he is, both on defense, guarding all five positions, being able to switch on everything. And I believe they're they're second in switching on defense just behind the Celtics by like a tick um, when it comes to switching defense in the NBA this season. And he he's the reason for all that. He can blow up everything. And then on offense, every year he's gotten better. There was, you know, that whole dribble handoff game between him and Duncan Robinson, right? Like that's that's a whole conversation on its own, basically, if we wanted to have it. Um, but now he's become more and more aggressive, right? And I think that's the thing that everybody was waiting for. When I talked to the Heat years ago about Bam Adebayo specifically, I remember them saying to me, we're not comparing him to Giannis, but we think he can be Giannis-like in a lot of ways. And he can do some of the things that Giannis could could do. Eventually, we'll get there with him. Remember um, when the Heat were saving all their cap space for Giannis, by the way, and Bam's, yes. Bam's max extension compromised yes. that? That was like a whole thing. That just, yes. just not, It was a whole like subject. Yes. Well, and because Bam and Giannis actually share an agent. They so sure I think that, that that was part of the conversation too. So, you know, I mean, we look, we love the rumorville in this, in this sport more than any other sport. I feel like they were, and you might say, you might say they were dangerously looming as yes. a suitor for Giannis Antetokounmpo. By the way, I didn't know any of that. Thank you. I, you made me feel like 85 years old because I've generally opted out of social media. I had no idea any of this was going on. I like it. I'm, I'm excited for dangerously looming. I hope they come at us every time they win. It's, it's makes for a good time. Well, and I feel like now you can absolutely be part. Like, Heat Twitter will embrace you when you drop a dangerously looming like you just did now. So there you go. So, um, But, yeah, so I think that Bam's ascension, because it's been, you know, there's been some progress to it, but it's incremental, right? It hasn't been this crazy explosion. I think that plays a role in this, too. He's not Jokic or Embiid or any of these other guys that we fawn over. But man, he, he's right there, like in that next, if not right there with them, like right below them, like just there, a smidge below them. So I think all those things play into that. Um, and when they built this team, as I was mentioning earlier, it reminded me of those old Riley teams, the Tim Hardaway, Jamal Mashburn, Alonzo Mourning, PJ Brown, Dan Marley, that group uh, in a lot of ways. Because you just have a bunch of dogs, right? Like rabid dogs who are frothing at the mouth and want to eat you alive when they're playing defense. And they are just guys that can make shots in big spots, whether it's Jimmy um, or Kyle, right? In those situations, particularly. And then you've got, you know, Tyler Hero, who's, you know, this young ascending player um, who is you know, had his struggles last year. And and I think that now he's gotten very serious about basketball. We kind of joked and mocked him when we saw those boxing videos or whatever in the offseason, but he's gotten stronger physically. His workouts um, were targeted to make him stronger to be able to take the toll of an NBA regular season. And I think we're seeing that. We, you know, we saw Duncan struggle mightily earlier this season and come out of it. Um, I was going to say before, he's quietly up to 36% from three and truthfully I know that Heat fans were getting very frustrated with Duncan Robinson it's the first year of a big big contract he was slumping I never spent one second worrying about it because shooters are going to come up and down and his percentage is going to regress to the mean and and more to the point 
defenses never stopped treating him like a five alarm fire at all times, which is essentially as much as valuable as him making the actual shots is the fact that he's dragging two guys with him 30 feet from the hoop when he comes around that screen for a bam. So I never worried about that, but you're right. He's up to 36%, which probably means if I looked it up in the last month, he's probably 40 plus. Like it's back to me and Duncan Robinson. A hundred percent. And it's funny because you don't even want to see what my um, hometown childhood friend group chats were like on WhatsApp during that uh, first few months of the season with Duncan. I was literally like sitting there fighting with that. Like I would just be like, come on guys. Like he's, he's like, Outside of Steph Curry over the last three years, there hasn't been a guy that has hit more threes. Like, what are we talking about here? Like, you need to relax. And it's funny because that that group chat actually helps me kind of have the pulse of the way people think. It's why I am on social media. While not, not as active as I used to be, um, I still observe a ton because I, I like to kind of see what the pulse of NBA Twitter is. Because as you know, um, it can change from second to second on uh, players and teams. Um, but just to finish just kind of the, the construction of this team, then I get then you you see what heat culture is really about, right? Like, yes, all the guys who are former all-stars, et cetera, or the ascending young players, every team has that. But here's where they differentiate themselves from. Oh, no, we're verging, we're verging into heat propaganda. I can't wait. Come on, give it, give it to me. Get go full propaganda. Here we go. It is absolutely finding the diamonds in the rough. Like they are so freaking good at this. They are. I hate. I hate to. I hate to indulge in the heat. The heat, the heat culture propaganda. But they are. They are better than they're in the ninety fifth percentile NBA teams that undrafted second round scrap heap redemption. But even like a guy like Dwayne Dedman, who was yes. given up on by the whole league. Anyone could add Dwayne Dedman. I mean, I can go back to the Pat Riley days, the early Heat days, Anthony Carter, Ike Austin. I mean, there was a resurrection year for Rod Strickland in there, like in between uh, Alonzo Mourning's kidney and Dwayne Wade arriving. Like there, you know, Eric Murdoch. I mean, I can sit here and talk about a million guys who were on the outs in the NBA who resurrected their careers in Miami, not to mention finding guys like like a Udonis Haslam or an Anthony Carter you know, who were playing either in Europe or the CBA back then or whatever it was. Um, and, you know, look, go to Riley with the Knicks. He did it with Anthony Mason and John Starks and those type of guys. So that, for all the stuff that people talk about with Riley, about, you know, Showtime and all the stars, LeBron, Wade, Magic, you know, et cetera, blah, blah, blah. He's connected in New York, man. Like, he's lunch pale. His dad was a rough and tumble type dude that would make him do all sorts of crazy Okay, when he was a kid and made him as tough as he was. And it's why he was basically he went from being a star in college to being basically a Bruce Bowen type in the NBA. You know what I mean? Like that's who he was. He had to scrap to survive. So those he loves those guys. So when you look at this roster, you know, whether it's uh, Caleb Martin right? Or Gabe Vincent, who I was calling G League games for it uh, with PJ Carlissimo at the G League showcase when he was with the Stockton Kings and Adam Simon of the Heat, the guy who unearths all these uh, diamonds in the rough, was there. And he's the guy flying all over the country to these small little gyms and uh, and small uh, gyms uh, you know, across the world to find these type of guys. And it's them and Toronto, at least for me, that do the best job in the NBA at finding and unearthing these guys. Yeah, Gabe Vincent is like Kyle Lowry sits out, just pencil him in for 15 to 20 points. It's, it's like, you know, Dwayne Dedman gets hurt, 
Big Yurt, or Bam gets hurt. Big Yurt starts and he's putting up double doubles. And Caleb Martin, just such a Heat player. Just is yeah. he's just always in some. Shit. He's just always at the rim trying to block a shot. He's dunking on people. He likes contact. He's boxing out bigger dudes just to do it. Um, you said it. This is a very. And I said it the first week of the season. The first ten things column I wrote this season. This is the just. It's almost so Heat. That it's too much heat. Like it's just such a, a – they're just so mean and nasty yeah. and physical. And look, defensively, I think they're sixth overall in defense. I, I think clearly when they have their best defenders on the floor, they are as advertised. They're going to be an absolute nightmare to score on in the playoffs. They're going to be able to switch. I, I like how they I've, – I've, I've said before, they weaponize their own versatility. Like, a lot of teams switch schemes from a position of weakness. Okay, this isn't working. Let's try this. The Heat switch schemes from a position of strength. Oh, we've been switching this whole time. Boom, here's traditional defense. Boom, here's a trap. Another thing, in when the other team has a two-for-one or is trying to run the clock out and get the last shot, the Heat will spring traps out of nowhere just to speed that team up and try to get the Heat to get a two-for-one or the Heat to get the last shot just to get them to shoot sooner. And if you can see these teams, like, what the hell is coming at us? We don't even know. Defensively, you know, and, and their top four defenders are so good, they can easily absorb a Robinson or a Hero as sort of a weak link on the wing. To me, the question about this team has always been, are they going to be able to score enough in the half court when it when push comes to shove against elite postseason defense who who are more likely to be able to switch a lot of their stuff, who are going to have all the Duncan Robinson stuff scouted and they're on high alert for it, who are going to have the Kyle Lowry 75-foot hit-aheads, like they're going to be on high alert for that to try and take away their transition game. Can this team score enough in the half court because they're not a great shooting team? You know, uh, Lowry and Robinson are, but Bam's a mid-range guy. Butler's a mid-range guy. Tucker all, Tucker leads the league in three-point shooting. It sounds ridiculous for me to say they're not a great shooting team. B.J. Tucker literally leads the league in three-point shooting. <laughs> but can they scrounge enough in the half court? I, I think what we've seen in the last couple of weeks is trending in a good direction for them. But that, to me, is their bellwether. What's your bellwether for them? Like, whether they can actually whether they can actually win, pull this off and, let's say, make the finals. Well, by the way, real quick, let me double back on the defense. Um, you forgot to mention the Spo zone, right? Like, yeah, the, there you, you go. Know. There's another one. Yeah, he loves to just kind of randomly throw a zone ad out at you, and and particularly when it comes to their switching, we saw what they did to Demar Derozan yesterday, right? You had PJ to start on him. They would switch Bam on him, um, and then all of a sudden PJ would switch on Vucevic and and seal Vucevic. Vucevic did not have the type of game that you would have thought, considering um, you know that that they were going to try to get that he were forcing Bam onto DeRozan a ton. And I think the Bulls thought they could take advantage of P.J., and clearly they haven't done their homework. They didn't can you do their imagine, homework can you on imagine, P.J. Can you imagine if you just if – uh, if I just took you, George Sedano, and I said, George, I'm going to just stick you under the rim, and here's what's going to happen. For two minutes, P.J. Tucker is just going to hip-check you yes. under the basket. Right. All you have to do – I'll give you $500 if in a minute – you're not out of bounds on the opposite sideline. You would lose in five. It would be so right. unpleasant. You'd be brewed in the ER. A hundred percent. And then in that same defensive scheme, you have Jimmy kind of like roaming, almost playing like a free safety on the weak side, right? Um, and and that's really when the defense is at their best, when they've got um, Bam um, and PJ where they can switch and Jimmy just kind of roaming around on the weak side. To me, that's when they're, uh, you know, it, it's going to be really hard to, to score on them. But 
as far as their what's the what's the one thing I'm thinking about offensively that can make the look to me it's Tyler Hero right and I think where the Heat have struggled a little bit Zach is they've had these and we've seen this across the NBA we just saw it with Dallas and and, and Golden State the other day I mean no lead is safe anymore right like I think it's fair to say that and even as good as the Heat are, I mean, offense is incredible right now in the NBA. It might be as good as we've ever seen. Now, you can say that maybe some of the rules play a factor in that. Okay, fine, whatever. But nonetheless, we are seeing as skilled a group of NBA players as maybe we've ever seen. And, and I know to, your point about, to your point about comebacks, we know what's fueling that. It's threes. Right. And the Heat defense allows the most three-point shots right. in the league. Correct. Somewhat by design, it's very right. Bucksy and it's we're yeah. going to let you fire away from three and protect the rim. And they've gotten away with that now for two and three years because I, they they contest shots well. They make you play the clock. I mean, there is some, it's not just luck. And by the way, they're not even getting that lucky. Opponents are shooting like average from three. So this is not a defense built on like last year's Knicks that opponents yeah. are shooting some preposterously low percentage from three. Yeah. So to me, you know, at the end of the game, um, they are at their best in the games. Tyler Hero has been in the game at the end of games. Um, you know, look, do I trust Jimmy uh, in a playoff series to make a big play? It, you know, absolutely. No question. But he has struggled in clutch time this year. I mean, there, there's no doubt about that. Meanwhile, Tyler Hero has been excellent in clutch time in his time uh, this season. So to me, he's the key in a lot of ways. Because those big leads evaporate and you need a guy that can hit a shot from anywhere, to your point. And Tyler is best suited with his shot profile to hit it from anywhere. It doesn't matter if it's contested or not, open. He's just capable of, of scoring at all the different levels. And, and I think he's a key. And that's a lot to put on a guy in his third season. But we did see clearly glimpses of that uh, in his rookie season with the bubble. The other thing I think people need to watch out for is... I think they're getting reinforcements. Now, I don't know how much they can count on this, but I believe, you know, Woj reported that that Victor Oladipo will probably be back the second week of March. Uh, look, I'm not reporting this. I'm just using, you know, I'm just educating, you know, and doing an educated guess here, right? I'm guessing he's coming back for the Houston game, okay? Because if there's a soft spot in the schedule, that's probably the place to put him in on March 7th, right? And just kind of get him back in the flow. That's in six days. Yeah. Yeah, but he, I heard he looks fantastic, Zach. Like, unbelievable. Um, so, you know, the culture is working there, apparently. So, uh, he he could be back. I'm hearing there could be a chance Markeith Morris could be back sooner rather than later. And that would just help, um, you know, just giving PJ a spell occasionally. Because, you know, PJ's 37 years old. Um, and I know Spo loves to do stuff with Markeith that the Wizards used to do with him, particularly in the mid-range um, on offense. And, you know, he's, he's, he's a good enough defender, certainly to help you. He's a, he's a fine backup for, right. Um, but I think the Oladipo aspect of this could be big. It just depends on what we get from him. But if you can get like 70% Oladipo, man, all of a sudden they're even deeper. And then who do you cut out of this rotation? Like, is it Max Struess is out? Probably. Um, is Caleb Martin's minutes go down? You're not getting Gabe Vincent out of the rotation, to your point earlier. He's already the backup point guard to me. But I, I just think that Spo is going to have so many players at his disposal to mix and match that I think that can help them uh, in a long series if guys get into, um, you know, foul trouble, et cetera, or if guys are struggling. He's got guys he can trust um, that he can go to. The question is, can those guys elevate some of those 
two-way guys or former two-way guys, can they elevate in the playoffs? But to answer your question, Tyler Hero, to me, is the bell cow as far as their success at the end of games. The Oladipo thing is interesting. I, I personally think it's got to be much more than 70% for me to play him in a playoff game. 30% reduction of any NBA player other than like a top 10 guy. You're you're pretty much compromising your team, particularly a team that's so good around you. Markeith Morris, I, I'm glad to hear. I, I've said this repeatedly. Like, I, I love Nikola Jokic's game. I, I just, I was on NBA Today last week and we were talking about the MVP and I, I, it was a segment I wasn't on. And they, everyone was, they talked about every candidate but Jokic. And I'm sitting there trying to like, are we like, in, how is this guy not coming up in the, in the, is any, am I crazy? Am I an insane person? But for him to get suspended one game for that shot on Markeith Morris was, was asinine. It should have been multiple games. It was a cheap shot. I don't care that Markeith Morris instigated it, which he did at the more IR instigators. It was a cheap shot and but Markeith Morris hasn't played. But to your point, those with PJ Tucker's right now the only four that's playing for them. And so I'm always curious to see sort of how they handle his minutes and how they handle when he's not playing. They can slide Butler to the four, which we've seen them do. Struess has played some four. Um the Butler Caleb to Martin. the Caleb, Caleb Martin, Martin can play some four. four. Yeah. Oladipo, so Markeith is a natural backup, legit four. Oladipo gives them another wing to build sort of smaller lineups with Butler or Martin or Struess or whoever at four. I'm still kind of anything they get from Oladipo is a sort of bonus surprise for me. Um, but yeah, I mean, I just uh, offensively, I think they're trending in the right direction. They're up to 13th in half court offense or 12th in half court offense, according to cleaning the glass. And I just think I, they're still scratching the surface of what they can do in terms of two-man actions and different set pieces with all their best players on the floor because their best groups have just haven't played that much together. Like the lineup with Hero in Duncan Robinson's place in the starting five, that's played 32 minutes the whole season. You're going to see more Lowry-Butler pick-and-rolls. You're going to see more Bam inverted pick-and-rolls with something else going on over here on the weak side. By the way, Lowry, Lowry is – I'm getting flashbacks to 2018-19 Toronto Lowry – because he's played a lot of this season, a lot of games this season where he just has like almost a comical level of disinterest in shooting. He just like will pass up yep. open threes, get it back, pass it up again. And I'm like, dude, will you shoot? I know you're trying to be unselfish point guard Kyle Lowry. But then I remember that he played that season with Kawhi exactly that way. To the point that there was part of me that was like, is he like protesting the trade? Like, is he mad? <laughs> He's not shooting. And then when they needed him to score, yeah. he scored. And what he was really doing was just sort of trying to get everyone involved, trying to get Pascal to come up a level. And you, I think I think there's a method to his madness. I think he's playing this way to get Hero going, to get Bam going, to get all these other guys going. I'm getting a little flashbacks. Well, it's funny you say that because when Duncan was at his worst struggling this season, there was no one defending him more than Kyle Lowry. And Kyle would sit there and say, because Kyle was also struggling early on this season from 3-2, and he was like, well, I mean, I'm, I'm shooting like crap too. You know what I'm saying? Like, so, like, it's, you know, it just happens sometimes. Like, he'll get out of it. He's a great shooter. Um, so, to your point, yes, he has been a stabilizing force for them in a lot of ways. Because, look, let's face it. I love Jimmy Butler. You love Jimmy Butler. We all love Big Face Coffee. Um, but, you know, Jimmy's history is he's going to call a horse's ass a horse's ass, right? And I think because of that, it, it you know, that in that culture, you know, it's embraced. 
But, you know, people have feelings, <laughs> you know, people are human. And I think that Kyle can kind of balance that out. While he's not Mr. Warm and Fuzzy necessarily, he's actually a good balance to Jimmy, I think, in that regard in the locker room. And, of course, they still have Udonis in there, um, who is is just kind of the guy who is basically an extension of the coaching staff. Um, although I love the minutes that he gets because I love that they give him a standing ovation in the arena every time he comes into the games. Um, but, you know, you talked to Big Yurt. You mentioned him earlier. And, and you know, he he talks about how Udonis and Alonzo Mourning are literally on his ass every single day. Sounds, it sounds really unpleasant, by the way. It does. Just like having those guys, like, uh, those guys yelling at me and, like, shouting. I don't want any yes. part of that. Yes. But Big Yurt, it, they, what he says is, I'm too nice. Right. So I need those guys to toughen me up. And I think that that, you know, the locker room has a good balance. Right. Like they they're good at understanding, um, you know, post Riley, you can't push everyone's buttons all the time. Right. Um, because when Pat was there, I mean, let me tell you something. I mean, we could go back. I remember Mike Wise wrote this story back in the day in The Washington Post. Do you remember? Do you know the Todd Day story? This rings a bell, but. But I, first of all, I have a soft spot for Todd Day. But yeah, please tell the story because it rings a bell, but I'm not, I'm not registering it. All right. So I, I will get us back on track on current heat. But this is just a great story just to encapsulate who Pat Riley was, right? So Pat Riley's uh, obviously coaching the heat. This is during the Alonzo Morning, Tim Hardaway days. And, you know, they signed Todd Day, right? And, you know, look, we know this, right? Pat Riley, three-hour practices, insane, you know, heat culture, blah, 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 right? Put on your so, knee pads. Bring your yeah. knee pads today. Yep. It says on the whiteboard, pads. Yeah, yep. And apparently Todd Day, not used to any of this, talking mad in the locker room about Pat Riley. So, of course, it gets back to Pat. So, Pat comes in um, into the locker room to talk about their game plan for that particular night or whatever, and he's. He says, and again, I'm paraphrasing. He says something to the effect of, hey, so does anybody have a problem with the way we're doing things? And nobody says anything. And then he's like, are you sure? And he looks at Todd Day and he goes, Todd, Todd Day, I heard you have a problem with the way I'm doing stuff. And he's like, no, coach, whatever. He's like, no, you get the hell out of here. You're out of here. You're cut. They had signed him. Didn't matter. Get the hell out of here, Todd Day. Like that, that's just. Riley, like, and and I, so when I, when the, the team has made the transition from Pat Riley, who, uh, you know, after winning the championship in 2006, the following season broke his hip because he was so angry in Chicago at the lackluster effort from his team with Shaq and Wade and Posey and Antoine Walker and those guys that he broke his hip trying to kick a door open. Um, they have, you know, Spo is intense, but they have, they've mellowed some in a lot of ways, including Pat. Uh, he's kind of become like the grandfatherly figure in a lot of ways. I remember um, when I talked to Spo about for the silly story I wrote that I was way too into about whether coaches were going to go full on casual look forever now that it had taken hold in the bubble. And Spo, he almost like whispered it because he was scared to say it out loud. He felt like he was betraying Riley yeah. by saying he was pro casual, and he was he was like. He, he, it's, he was like legitimately uncomfortable. Like I thought he was actually going to say, can, can we just, can you just not have this in? Can we go off the record? I'm like, <laughs> like, he was so tentative. He felt like it was a true betrayal of the spirit of Pat Riley. He, I mean, could you imagine if you would have written in your story, sources close to Eric Spolstra told me he was in favor of the more casual look. That would have been the greatest line um, in uh, ESPN.com history. Um, but yeah, I, look, they, 
they've mellowed some, he's mellowed some. Um, and I think that there's like this nice little balance now, um, there where it's not always like, yes, they want, it is military school still like, don't get it twisted. Um, but there's a nice balance there on what they're doing. And I think that's why, um, guys, veteran guys, particularly want to play there, right? It's why Kyle was good playing there. I obviously the relationship with Jimmy helped, but you know, this franchise, I mean, you and I talk, you know, you and I have talked about this off the air and I've heard you talk about it on the podcast. I mean, if you go back to 2017 or 18 or they whatever. They were dead. They were dead in the water. Hassan Whiteside and Dion Waiters. I mean, people like you and me were sitting there saying, you know, Eric Spolster is the, is, is the coach of the year because he's got Dion Waiters leading a team to a 41 wins, you know, with Goran Dragic. And, but they were dead in the water. And I, I, I think that a lot of things happened. Okay. It was Pat Riley's reconciling with Dwayne Wade. I think that was huge. Okay. People don't realize what a seminal moment that was in this iteration of the Miami Heat. Um, So Dwayne's longtime agent passes away, um, Henry Thomas. And, you know, obviously Dwayne had left, uh, you know, in in an acrimonious way. Uh, They had split with the Heat. He went to Chicago, ended up in Cleveland. Three alphas, the three alphas in Chicago. Right, the three alphas, yes. I do remember that, Jimmy and Rondo and him. Um, So uh, it was bad. It was bad, like bad. Like I'm telling you that both sides felt betrayed. It was brutal, right? And I was talking to both sides. I'm in the middle of all of this. Like I'm literally doing sports center hits. And I'm getting like, as I'm talking on the air, like text messages from both sides of the equation are, are, are like texting me. Uh, about this and 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 here's the thing they got over it and they they they, it just like Dwayne talked about it um and you know Pat talked about it with me um and it was just like they embraced and it was all good and then after that you know Dwayne came back right like they they kind of celebrated the end of his career the way they should have and that is what really helped get Jimmy Butler there um you know and I know Dwayne has actually tweeted this you're welcome right or something like that uh, in the last couple of years when they went to the finals, but it's true. Like that, I don't think any of that would have happened. Um, or any of this might've happened had that reconciliation not happened. So it's kind of wild that the mellowing of Pat Riley and, and the organization, in a lot of ways really kind of, uh, created this kind of new, uh, resurrection of sorts. I don't want to get too deep into it because it is a topic I've covered at length, but it is one of the greatest front office accomplishments of the last 20 or 30 years in NBA history for them to go from where they were in 1718 to the bubble finals to where they are now, a very much a threat to make the finals. And, and I do think, I do think when push comes to shove, they're going to be able to manufacture enough points in the half court to have a, to at least have a decent chance yeah. to come out of these. I think, to, by decent chance, what I mean, I think to me, having seen Harden with Philly, I think Philly, Milwaukee, Miami, and it, Milwaukee has been my de facto pick since the Nets situation when Haywire. Sure. Their defense is beginning to worry me a little bit, but I still just think they're kind of half. I, I said to Bontemps, I think they're sandbagging. Sandbag is a little strong. I think they're just kind of waiting, waking me up for the playoffs. But I think Miami's right there, and then Boston's coming for that tier of teams. Um, but I don't I don't know if they'll if they'll get there even though they have the best point differential. I think Miami 
is a legit shot to make the finals. I think they will score enough in the half court. And defensively, I did see um, Nikias Duncan, who's a who's a Heat. Oh, uh, I love that kid. I, that kid. First of all, shout out to that kid. I and actually, I want to give props to Ethan Skolnick, who used to you know covers the Heat for a long time. Uh, he covered it as a traditional journalist for a long time. He's got his own thing going. Five Reason Sports. He's the guy that 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 saw Nikias' stuff on the internet and gave him an actual platform that then led him to where he's at now, which is basketball news, I believe. Yeah. That kid, he's he's you know, look, I don't, you know, I I say this with high praise. Like he reminds me of you, like, you know, 10 oh, or 15 stop. years ago or whatever. Like, like, dude, you look, let's give you your flowers. I know. No, you, I don't you, want any flowers. Flowers no, no, die no. real fast. I don't want any flowers. Don't, flowers are stupid. Don't do the Tony Kornheiser curmudgeon thing, okay? I'm not a curmudgeon. Deserve, I'm a very pleasant person. You, <laughs> you deserve your flowers, man. You were doing back then that nobody was doing at the time. And people like me were, were couldn't get enough of it. And then that spawned the Tom Haberstros of the world in a lot of ways. Okay, enough. Enough out of you. Now, Nikias Duncan, My you, point. Are, you, you are the godfather Zach Lowe, you are at that level now. You're like Pat Riley. You're a godfather now. My point was, as you, as I dismiss everything you just said is insane, um, is that he brought up an interesting point that I'm going to be watching the rest of the way about their defense because I think their defense is, again, as advertised. But he brought up the idea of, like, are they over-switching with Bam? In other words, is Bam by far our best rim protector and our best rebounder? And by the way, no rebounds, no rings. And the Heat are one of the best rebounding teams in the league on both ends of the floor. Uh are, are they almost switching him into like oblivion where he's out of the play on too many possessions? I actually I actually don't think that's true. At first blush, I think the benefits of switching far outweigh whatever costs are, but it is something I'm going to be watching. But I just, I think this team at full throttle is going to be a problem. They're certainly not scared of anybody. They're certainly not scared of Milwaukee. But I will say, let's finish where we started because you brought up the Nets. The Heat have like an 80% chance at the number one seed. We could be looking at Brooklyn, Miami as the one-eight series in the first round of the playoffs. I'm just saying. And Brooklyn, if they ever get their actual team, has so much shooting around Ben Simmons, has the best player maybe in the NBA in Kevin Durant. Like, imagine if that's your like we're sitting here telling you that he can make the finals. If that happens, they could also lose in the first round. Like, that's how right. crazy that is. That's the difference between if they got Toronto or Charlotte or Atlanta. That's a series win for the Heat. The Heat are winning those series in five or six games max. Brooklyn is like, I don't want that. I don't. No. I, can I avoid that? This yes. goes back to my thing. If you're the number one seed, you should be able to pick your opponent out of the two teams that get in, in from the plan. That should be a rule. You should be able to do it. Yeah. Well, by the way, um, interestingly enough, I, I don't know. I don't believe you follow uh, baseball very much, but that is a rule that they're tr they're they're talking about with Major League Baseball. Um, once the wild card situation on you know unfolds, they they're you know they're at least discussing that amongst many other things uh, at the moment uh, about the rule changes. I love it. I've been with you on that the whole way, right? Like it's look, we're already doing it for the All Star game, right? Like like we're picking teams, you know. I, I mean, let's go. Like let the number one seed get the advantage of whoever it is they want in that bottom group, basically. But yeah, look, there's the East is going to be a bloodbath, Zach. Like. Even if Miami were to play Toronto, that's not an easy series. No fun. I mean, you know, Nick Nurse versus Eric Spolstra is, you know, a basketball dork's dream. And and they're really good, obviously. I mean, Scotty Barnes yesterday was insane. 10 of 10 in the first half for like 20 some odd points. Uh, you know, Pascal is there. Uh, you know, obviously Van Vliet. Like that, that team is legitimately good. 
um, and can can test anyone in the first round. So there's not an easy series, but to your point, yes, you don't want the Nets. I actually think um, this is my hot take on the uh, the the trade between Philly and uh, and the Nets. I actually think again, big if is a qualifier. If Simmons can be Simmons again, they're better off with Simmons than they are with Harden. To your point, he's got these two monsters on the wings, right? That can just score at will whenever they want. He is a natural distributor. I want to say, I don't know if this number still holds up, but there was a stretch in the two previous seasons where those there was a two-year stretch where Ben Simmons was creating more open threes than anyone in the league, okay? Um, so there's that part of it. And then you're talking about a guy who's a top two or three defensive player of the year candidate year in and year out. Um, and they can play him in the dunker spot where they couldn't do that with Philly. Um, that was not possible. Um, well, they because, did. It know, just wasn't, well it was just wasn't right? good. Yeah. Um, so there's you see what you're doing. You see what you're doing, work. George. You see what you're doing. What? You're part of the problem. Why? This is supposed to be a Heat podcast, and here I we go. ESPN personality, George Sedano, going right to Brooklyn, going right to Philly, just overlooking the Heat. You're part of the problem. You are part of the dangerously looming problem. You should be kicked out of your group chat like an Android user like me who gets booted from all the group chats. You, George Sedano, are part of the problem. Heat and five. Hashtag Heat and five. That's the way this works. Dangerously looming. They're dangerously looming Heat and five. George Sedano, it's a pleasure. You will be co- you will be hosting uh, NBA Today in place of Malika today. I'll see you there. I'll be on that show. You're everywhere. You do a fantastic job. Thank you for uh, sipping some delicious heat culture Gatorade with me this morning on the Low Post Podcast. It was a pleasure. It's like Cuban coffee. It injects uh, gasoline into your system. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.